1: When I was around 12, my family and I piled into our maroon-red Ford Taurus station wagon and drove down to Blockbuster to rent a movie. Somehow we settled on Fiddler on the Roof. I think I protested because it seemed like a really boring thing. But we ended up watching it and I was immediately transfixed. The music, of course, was so engaging. But it was also very strange. There were names that I'd never heard before and costumes that really just very different than anything I'd ever seen. The themes though, were pretty familiar. My own Mormon family were constantly trying to negotiate between the traditions uh, and practices of, of our faith um, against a fast changing global economy and media landscape. I mean, my dad would constantly talk about how we had to protect ourselves from the evil of, of mass media. So it was really a familiar story about how to preserve one's culture um, amidst a changing world. The movie Fiddler on the Roof was based on a musical that first debuted in 1964. The musical was very popular. For a long time, it held the record as the longest-running Broadway musical. The film adaptation was released in 1971. But the original story of Fiddler on the Roof comes from a collection of
0: tales by Sholem Aleichem, called Tevye and His Daughters. At least at some point in my class, I'm going to be talking about Shom Aleichem. And I'm almost every semester, if not every other semester, teaching Tevye. That's Saul Zaret, professor of Yiddish literature at Harvard University. If I'm thinking about what it is that I teach or what of Yiddish literature has had the biggest influence or the biggest impact or has the biggest footprint, um, it has to be this book. Welcome to Writ Large, a
1: podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode, I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book that changed the course of history. For this episode, I sat down with Professor Zaret to discuss the Tevye stories. The Tevye stories are a series of stories published over 20 years by Russian author Shol Sholmelechem. Sholmelechem wrote these stories in Yiddish, the language predominantly spoken by Ashkenazi Jews. Yiddish is a fusion language, blending Germanic, Hebraic, and Aramaic elements. It originated somewhere around the 11th century.
0: And by the early 20th century, late 19th, early 20th century, the dominant language of the Jewish home in Eastern Europe was was this, this fusion language, Yiddish.
1: So it's the 18th, 19th century. We're in Russia. There isn't a Yiddish literature at this point,
0: but there is a world of Jewish intellectuals. You have writers who think of themselves as Jewish Enlightenment figures, so what's called the Jewish Haskalah, the Jewish Enlightenment. And they're interested in improving the masses. These Jewish Enlightenment
1: figures wrote in Hebrew, which was the language of the learned class. They wanted to bring what they were learning
0: from the Jewish tradition and the Western tradition to the masses. But unfortunately, the masses speak Yiddish, so we have to sin. We have to go down to their depths and bring them something to read. And so they started writing more and more in Yiddish. And uh, that kind of writing for the masses changed over time. It started to develop into a sensationalist mode of literature that was popular in pamphlets and newspapers. And at the same time, there was this growing group of people that didn't want to just serve the masses, but actually wanted to create literature of all kinds, of all levels, including high literature, or high art literature, in Yiddish. Aleichem was at the forefront of this second group. So in the 1880s, he's sort of frustrated with the more popular forms or the lack of institutional structure for Yiddish literature. And he decides to create it himself through um, making various magazines, but also through writing himself what he considered the first good Yiddish novels and trying to make Yiddish into something proper, a proper modern literary language.
1: He basically invents a literary legacy that he can be a part of.
0: He picks a writer that he liked from the past, a a writer by the name of Abramovich, whose pen name was uh, uh, Mendele Moichersford, Mendele the Book Peddler. He became the grandfather, and Shaul became the son, the the next generation. So creating this kind of genealogy.
1: Shaul also chose a pen name to write under. His real name was Sholm Rabinovich.
0: Very often people would choose pen names um, in order to hide that they were going down to this low literature. A proper person would write in Hebrew or in a non-Jewish language. Um, And so often you wanted to hide your identity. But at the same time, as Sholm Aleichem wanted to create a sort of proper Yiddish literature, he also wanted his pen name to reflect how he wanted this literature to work. So Sholm Aleichem literally means how do you do? It's the thing you say when you walk into a room and people answer, Aleichem sholem. So it's an already announcement of a particular kind of intimacy that he wanted the literature to have. Here it's just two Jews talking. That's what this literature is about. That's where it resides in the conversations taking place between the most normal or regular of people.
1: Sholm Aleichem published his first story in Yiddish in 1883 when he was
0: 24 years old. But his first works weren't his best. They, they, they miss something or there's something about them trying to be Jewish novels that leads them to be kind of imbalanced in some way. Nevertheless, he continued publishing his own work, as well as works by other Jewish authors throughout the 1880s and 90s. The Russian Empire wouldn't allow daily Yiddish newspapers, so they had to do all these various loopholes. And so you'd get these thick journals where you could publish a novel, but more than likely you're publishing a lot of short fiction. He published short fiction, as well as novels and plays,
1: but he's best known for his monologues. These conversational, first-person narratives brought us some of his most popular and beloved characters, including Tevye. The first Tevye story is called Tevye Strikes It Rich. It tells the story of a peasant man who
0: runs into the figure of Sholmelechem and tells him his story. It wasn't clear that that was going to become anything more than one story. And then one thing led to another, and he decided to write another one. These stories became very popular. Everyone loved this new character of Tevya, and it's in the third story that he picked up what is now, from, you know, familiar from Fiddler on the Roof: this structure of Tevya's daughters, um, and his struggles to marry them off, their belief in love, their attraction to modernity, and Tevya's needing to negotiate uh, that encounter with modernity through his daughters. So it could have gone on forever, uh, depending on how many daughters he thought to write about.
1: In the play of Fiddler
0: on the Roof, Tevya has five daughters. But in the Tevye stories, the number changes. And In each uh, case, you have a daughter uh, leading to a certain kind of economic or geographic displacement. So rather than uh, be able to maintain a certain kind of continuity, uh, each story is about a kind of disruption. Something doesn't really work out, even though Tevya wants it to work out, either in favor of uh, tradition, which he seems to try to... Um, defend in some way or uh, ending up in the end somewhere else. Each story is a mini tragedy in that sense, even if Tevye tries to talk his way out of a tragedy.
1: So part of the appeal of these stories seems to be the conflict between generations, the conflict between modernity and tradition, uh, the conflict between men and women. Um, How does uh, Sholm try to resolve those tensions? Does he have kind of clear answers for those tensions.
0: So one of the amazing things about the stories is that they're all love stories, right? And we're used to love stories being told from the perspective of the lovers, right? Romeo and Juliet as a kind of model. But these are love stories told from the perspective of the father, which is just odd. We're used to these kind of lonely, brooding intellectuals. Something's not working out for them. There's a kind of dramatic tear in their souls. But here... This is, about, this is about Tevye and the way he speaks. So in that sense, the stories are precisely not about resolving these tensions. In fact, they're about understanding how these tensions can be unresolvable. Tevye exists in an in-between space. He's not one of the children who's going to embrace modernity. Say, one of the children who embraces socialism or you know, thinks that love is worth leaving one's Jewishness behind, as in the case of Chava, the very famous intermarriage that takes place in the stories. Rather, he has to live in this kind of space in which nothing is truly understood. Tevye has some basic
1: Jewish education, but is by no means an expert in Jewish ritual or text. Again, he inhabits an in-between space, one foot in classical Jewish tradition,
0: and one in the modern era. He's amazingly able to misquote things in a way that may seem to make him look not so smart, but actually shows that he's very good at manipulating that text, but also showing that he has a very limited ability of text. So that's on the one hand. His relationship to tradition is fraught and kind of unbalanced. And on the other side, he's really attracted to all these men that his daughters fall in love with. They're potential son figures to him. They, most of them have a great ability to talk, which Tevye is very attracted to. He loves conversing with them. But ultimately, he can, finds it very difficult to understand exactly what they're doing. There's a, there's a gap in vocabulary. And so even from a linguistic point, point of view, from the way Tevye talks, there's this kind of inability to resolve these tensions. In fact, he kind of lives the tension in, in this way that allows him to be what I call a kind of machine. It's the Tevye machine. It's why Aleichem is able to write story after story, this kind of serialized mode, rather than finish a novel that has a nice closure to it. Because Tevya will never be able to fully arrive on one side or the other. He really lives in between these worlds. He seems often quite
1: bewildered um, by what's going on around him. And he's attracted and, in some sense, loyal to tradition, but without really necessarily having strong convictions
0: about it. Well, because tradition hasn't really done him very well. Um, he, he is looked down upon uh, social, uh, uh, from a socioeconomic point of view. He does not live in the shtetl. A shtetl is a
1: small urban center outside a major city. It was the center of Jewish culture in the 19th century, as Jews weren't allowed to live within the larger cities. Sholmelechim himself grew up in a shtetl outside Kiev.
0: But he never says where Tevye is from. The Broadway show needed to give him a place to live, so they gave him Anatevka. they put him in the shtetl which is actually a strange reading, because it's very important that he's from nowhere. We don't actually know the name of the place where Tevye lives in the in the stories. He sells cheese in Boiberg, which is a resort town for rich people. He does go to the shtetl for various reasons, to pray or to other kinds of things, but he actually lives nowhere at all.
1: Tevye became an important character in Sholm
0: Aleichem's stories. He was a favorite among readers, and eventually among theatergoers. So being a writer is not, as, does, is not a great job. It's not very lucrative. So he found that these kinds of uh, speaking tours or performance tours, which he would go up on stage and become the characters on stage for the audiences. Everyone was deeply in love with these kinds of, these kinds of performances to see Shalmelechem, but also to see his characters come to life. So Tevye was one of those characters he would put on stage. Um, and Shalmelechem knew that Tevye was popular. So when he came to New York at various points um, and came to the Lower East Side where the Yiddish theater was thriving, this was the one he wanted to turn into a play that he thought was going to be a huge success.
1: The play debuted in 1919, three years after Sholem Aleichem's death. It was a total flop. It was directed by Maurice Schwartz, who founded the Yiddish Art Theater in New York City with the aim of producing classic literary works. In 1939, he produced a film version of the play in Yiddish. How did this text get turned into a a popular Broadway play and then a movie? And how has that shaped the perception and the the influence of this work?
0: So uh, Shom Aleichem gets translated and republished in the 1950s. Um, And those stories are very popular and they become, some of them are adopted into like a short kind of, off, I think it was off-Broadway kind of thing. Um, and somehow these stories found their way to the makers of Fiddler on the Roof. And, you know, there's this great line of, that they always tell in this kind of self-mythologizing way of like, who's going to want to watch a musical about Jews uh, getting into a pogrom? Like, how does this possible? A pogrom forms the backdrop for Fiddler on the Roof. In Act
1: 1, Tevye learns that a violent demonstration is going to be held in the town of Anatevka. Many such demonstrations and attacks took place in Russia from the late 1880s through the 1920s. This was a very different world than the post-World War II America where Fiddler on the Roof debuted.
0: There is a way in which Jewishness becomes part of popular discourse in America in a way that had never been before. If Jewish discourse in popular culture in America mostly in the 20s and earlier was vaudeville and was a Jewish accent in a kind of uh, ethno-joking but sometimes anti-Semitic way, here we have Jews appearing on the mainstream in a way that they wouldn't they haven't. They hadn't previously. So in many ways, Philip on a Roof takes the Tevye story and turns it into an immigrant-made-good kind of narrative. At least that's what it wants to do, right? By the end, there's the pogrom, but the Tevye and his family are moving to America, and there's great hope for them in that. And that can really charge audiences in some way to want to celebrate America, especially in the post-war period, where you have, you know, immigrant groups of all kinds, reaching prominence, not just Jews, but Italians and the Irish and, and even, even especially when it gets to the sort of multicultural and civil rights era, you know, African Americans, people were ready to think about the past in a way that would be entertaining and in a celebration of, Amer- of American success.
1: Part of the appeal is about this universal sense of change. And how do we, how do we navigate change? What is this text saying about change, and how has it shaped our own understanding?
0: It's really about a very particular point in Jewish history and in Jewish cultural experience, Jewish political experience. Um, and I think one of the attractions to the, to the story is that Tevye can't embrace the universal. Right? Take the Chava story, for instance, where Chava is asking him to embrace universalism, Right? We're all just humans. We all love each other. Jews and non-Jews can get along. And Tevye can't understand that. So one of the attractions to the story, I think, is its refusal to really live comfortably with these kind of overarching narratives. It says, you know, there's something about this that doesn't work. There's something something about this that doesn't work, and I need, to, I need to think more about it. I need to talk more about it. I need to continue talking about it. I need another story on top of this one to start to continue thinking more about it. Or I need another song to think about it, say, in the Broadway sense. Um, even the Broadway show doesn't end, I mean, it ends as Broadway shows need to with a kind of triumph. But it, too, has its ambivalences. Something isn't exactly right in that show. Um, there's a lot of mourning. There's a lot of love. There are a lot of weddings. But... You know, what, what happens at the end there? What is, what is happening with Tevi as he walks off the screen and the fiddler is playing, playing to him? It can be interpreted in a number of ways. And I think one way to think about it is this kind of enduring tension, is dur- enduring instability that defines the character and it defines the story in a way that makes it compelling. What I mean, what I mean when I say compelling is not that it makes everyone feel good. And Broadway shows ha- want to make people feel good, and this one does, right? I-, I don't want to deny that part of it. The songs are just really genius in their ability to, you know, catch people and hold them. And, you know, people who have never seen the play or the movie know the songs, right, just because they're that, they're that, they have that kind of ubiquity to them. But I think not just that they're t- tied to some kind of universal story of tension between tradition and modernity, but because they're attached to a kind of dissatisfaction with that, with that story. So you could say perhaps then this book expresses certain anxieties about
1: universalism and maybe without fully understanding why, um, an attempt to grapple with why we are attached to the local, to the traditional.
0: Yeah. There's a kind of sense of, why, why is it that I can't get away from this thing? The people that are writing this show aren't traditional Jews, right? Why do they go to these stories? What is it that brings them back? One answer could be this kind of guilt after the Holocaust, which is certainly there, and this kind of need to confront a past that many Jews have abandoned in some way um, or have had it taken from them uh, violently. Uh, but it's also this sense of, yeah, I, I'm successful in America, but what does it mean for me to be a Jew who's successful in America? Or what does it mean for audiences right, who code to the show to see it as Jewish, to read it as Jewish? What are non-Jews seeing in the story, right? What, what are they learning about Jewishness, or what are they learning about their own attachment to localities, to previous generations, generations that they've betrayed or have lost or don't know where they are anymore? In 2018, Fiddler on the Roof debuted again, this time in Yiddish.
1: It ran for a year and a half, first at the National Yiddish Folk's Bean Theater in New York, and then off-Broadway at Stage 42. Professor Zaret found one review of the show particularly notable.
0: And the review doesn't have anything to say about the production, for the most part. Not much to say about the, the play or the, the musical. But talked about how emotional it was for her to hear it in Yiddish, in this orig- in, its, in its original, quote-unquote, original language. There's something deeply unsettling for her. It made her cry. She was sobbing, just hearing these words that she herself could not understand. And why... I want to ask myself, why, why is this show so entertaining, but also so emotionally uh, bracing? And so my my theory is that there's something about this encounter with a past that one has a partial relationship with that arises, the, that, that brings up these very difficult um, and unsettling emotions, even in the midst of celebration, even in the midst of the comedy with a capital C uh, that the show presents. Through Tevye, Sholmelechem gives voice to the folk, the
1: shtetl dwellers. But by the late 19th century, when Sholmelechem was writing these stories, shtetl life was already beginning to disappear, a result of industrialization and growing
0: violence against Jews. The people that are reading, consuming, and canonizing this story are living in the city and don't actually live in the shtetl world. Uh, Tevye, as a character, is anachronistic in that way. Shalmelechim is performing for an audience of urban dwellers some version of their own past. So the impact it has is this kind of strange uh, tension between nostalgia, guilt, and a celebration of a kind of modern literature. Because it's it's one of the figures that is that it constitutes modern Yiddish literature as such. So it has that kind of oversized influence, even as it kind of proves or shows the instability of that very institution. So that makes it a very powerful model, one that can you can use to read much more into, so that the version that gets put in many of the plays from that same period is a kind of strident um, uh, reactionary trying to save Jewish culture through embracing Tevye as a defender of, of Jewishness. So that that's one side of it. And that, and that kind of version of Tevye continues even to this day, people sort of embracing Tevye as a defender of tradition. Um <clears throat> And on the other hand, uh, what Tevye means for America, you always come back to the opening of Fiddler on the Roof, in which there needed to be a kind of Jewish Judaism 101. So if, you know, if you remember Tevya's first speeches, he's explaining what 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 a prayer shawl is, what tzitzis is, what prayer is for Jews. There's a kind of short theological disputation that kind of offers this very almost Christian version of Jewishness that 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 the I think the authors hope that. The audience will somehow understand. There's this kind of vocabulary lesson, almost. Um, And Tevye does figure as a kind of way for people to understand or have some sort of access to Jewishness.
1: Fiddler on the Roof provided Christian Americans access to a Jewish experience. It gave a Mormon 12-year-old in Utah like me a window into another world, another culture.
0: Through this particular story, it shared a
1: universal message.
0: So in a place like Japan... Fiddler on the Roof is is very popular and repeatedly uh, become a central part of of repertoires of musical theater there because in Japan, there's also this sense of trying to negotiate a relationship with the past and with with a tradition and trying to find characters and figures that can represent that tradition in a way that's compelling and digestible for a new modern Japan. So Tevye remains an, an essential model or paradigm for thinking through that problem, not necessarily an answer, but one that audiences return to regularly. It has a different life, obviously, in places like Poland and Eastern Europe, where um, there are other kinds of, of, of post-Holocaust debates going on. Um, and then it also is very popular in Israel, uh, where they also have a strange relationship with Yiddish and, and its past and how it informs their, uh, their present or informs the very language that they use.
1: Can you give us a portrait of Yiddish use today and, and, and life
0: Yiddish today is the daily vernacular of the growing Hasidic communities um, in New York, uh Jerusalem, and elsewhere. But also Yiddish has an oversized uh presence in American culture in general, um, either through the legacy of something like the Borscht Belt and 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 vaudeville and Hollywood, um, but also nowadays as an alternative way of thinking through one's Jewishness. So if if today uh, many young Jews are kind of Fed up is maybe a little bit too extreme, but not as interested in in rhetorics uh, in Jewish communities surrounding Israel and the Holocaust, but are looking to think about Jewishness in other ways or other kinds of Jewishness that have come through the past. Uh, Yiddish gives them access. Yiddish Yiddish has a certain dynamism to it uh, that I think remains attractive both in the 19th and 20th century. Remember those Enlightenment intellectuals trying to use Yiddish to reach the masses? I think still today it has a kind of... um, attractive quality as, as a vernacular that moves, that, that lives in the same tension that Tevye lives in. So if you were pressed at a cocktail party, how did this book change the world? The book uh, gives the world a character who embodies uh, some of the tensions that we think of when we're imagining how modernity works. So it's a text that gives us the model for how to talk through the issues of being a modern person Without resolving them, that's how that's how I think how important this book is as a, as a form, as 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 a text that gives us a vocabulary for 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 not stopping talking.
1: RIT Large is produced by Galen Beebe, Jack Pombriant, and me, Zachary Davis. We get help from Liza French. Our theme song is by Ian Koss, and our branding is by Dan Pechi. We're a member of LitHub Radio. RIT Large is a Lyceum Original Production. Join our discussion room in the Lyceum app to share your thoughts and hear what other listeners are saying. You can also find us on our website, writlarge.fm. There you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.